Open your Bibles to 1 John, 1 John, chapter 1. Today we're going to be talking about the beauty of Christ. Once again, last week we talked about the beauty of Christ in forgiveness, and today we're going to be talking about the beauty of Christ in our confession. Last week we looked at the uh, beauty of Christ in forgiveness, and verse 7 was that awesome, awesome, awesome voice uh, verse that we focused in last week, right? But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And I made a big to-do about all sin. All sin. All sin. Right? It doesn't say some sins. It doesn't say the really superficial sins. It doesn't say the minimal sins. It doesn't tell us it's the white lies. It doesn't tell us it's the nice sins that we like to think. But the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. The ugly sin. The sin that if people in this congregation would know would be reprehensible to everybody else. The sins that only you know. The sins that only you have dealt with. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And we said therein lies the beauty of Christ and our forgiveness. If you think about it as a human being, you have a certain amount of tolerance. You can tolerate certain things that people do. But even we ourselves have our limitation to say, that's where I draw the line. That's where I'm going to knock the guy out. That's where I'm going to say, no, I'm not allowing this person to do this. We have those limitations. Truth be told, I have those limitations. There's so many times they say, there's only so much I can take, right? And the flesh is always stirring, isn't it? The flesh is always stirring up, saying, give them a piece of your mind. Tell them how you feel. Don't take that. When I was a young man, I used to get in too many fights because I had thresholds that I would reach. And then I would say, this guy goes to this point, then we're going to throw. We're going to throw down. And I praise God that he delivered me from a lot of that because I was uh, just a crazy young man. But herein lies the glory. And I shared with you over the next few weeks, we're going to be taking a look at the beauty of Christ. And the reason why I'm doing this, and I believe that the Spirit of God has led me to this, is very simple. We could look at our world. We could see everything that's wrong with our world. We can look in the church. We can see everything that's wrong in the church. We could look at one another and see everything that's wrong with one another. And what it can do is produce anxiety. What it can do is it can produce fear. What it could do is produce trepidation. Just watch the news, man. If you watch the news every single day, and if you're one of those people that are bound to the politics, bound to the culture, Man, it's enough to knock you off your mind. You get rattled. You go, oh my goodness. But let me share something with you. As people of Christ, as people of the kingdom of God, we are not, We and let me say this again, we are not, God has not given us a spirit of fear. He has not given us a spirit of timidity. He has not given us a spirit of anxiousness, 
The Word of God tells us, be anxious for nothing but with everything, with prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving to make your request known to God. And what does it say? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, shall indeed guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. The sensory and social media operation of this world is bombarding us with fear, 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 and fear. And what is the antidote to fear? It's the beauty of Christ. It's beholding and apprehending Christ by faith. I say that many times. I say, you know, it's, it's not enough to know the Word of God, but you'd have to know the God of the Word. And so many people have used the Word of God as basically as cheap Christian incantations. But it is the Word of God apprehended by faith where it has power. Now the question you need to ask yourself is, Pastor, what do you mean by faith? How do I apprehend the Word of God by faith? You apprehend the Word of God by faith, by depending on the God who spoke the Word. On knowing Him and knowing His attributes in knowing that we believe in a God who cannot lie, He cannot manipulate us, He cannot lead us around. We believe in a God in whom there's no variableness, there's no shifting. So when God speaks, it is indeed the very truth. And when He speaks, I can anchor myself upon that Word. You know, Sunday mornings is a very interesting time for me. I begin on Monday preparing the sermon for Sunday. And Sunday morning is usually a time for me to get up early, get alone with the Lord in prayer, and then review what I've put together and kind of prepare my heart to speak the Word of God. Well, after all of that is done, and I, I come out of my office, I was sharing with Janet and Ricky this morning, as I come out of my office, someone every Sunday comes to meet me. You know who that is? Satan. The enemy comes. And the enemy's most useful tool on me is discouragement whether it is discouragement over something I did that week or maybe something I said that week, whether it's discouragement about why are you bothering, why are you continuing to go forward with this. It's not important that you know what the real issues are. The real issue is that the tool that the enemy primarily uses against me on Sunday morning is discouragement. This morning I broke from my office and started to go about getting ready for the day and preparing my clothes and doing everything else. And guess who came? The enemy came. And guess what started? Discouragement, discouragement, discouragement. And as I was sitting it there, and as I was taking it all in, you know, there's a tendency when the enemy comes upon you that your head goes down. Is this, this is true, by the way. Your countenance shifts. Your shoulders slump. Your head goes down. You consider 
what is being said to you, what is being spoken into your spirit. And as I did that, I drew upon the Word of God. I remember the sermon that I preached a few months ago regarding the sword of the Spirit and yielding the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. So I said, all right, you want to play that game? Let's go. And I unleashed the sword of the Spirit. And the first slash I made was 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Satan, you have no authority over me. Satan, you do not belong here. Satan, you cannot bring a charge against me. And off I went. And Scripture after Scripture, the spoken Word of God. And by the way, I want to let you know something. I do this verbally out loud. I speak the word of God. I want not only Satan to hear him, but whatever minions and demons that he brought alongside for the ride. And I speak the word of God. And I want to share something with you. The enemy fled. Why do we come together? Why do we teach the Word of God? Why do we preach the Word of God? Why do we go through particular pain to preach each word verse by verse by verse by verse, context by context, so that we, we, a collective we, would be armed, we would be empowered by the very Spirit of God to take on the things that the enemy is launching against the church. And church, may I say something? Let us not be like the rest of the world. Let us not live in fear. Let us believe every jot, every tittle of the Word of God, that it came divinely from God, that our God is indeed supernatural, that our God is transcended and He transcends the powers of this word, world. He transcends the science of this world. He transcends all that we worship and serve the living God. I don't know if we ever come to realization with that. It is the living God we're here before today. It is the living God that we humble our hearts and we come and we pause before Him. It is God Himself who gave us His Son, whose Son became that perfect sacrifice for sin, who bore our wrath and our punishment, who gave us that substitutionary atonement, who justified by His grace, by His righteousness, charged to our account. And let me share something, and I'll say this. Jesus will indeed come back for he has promised that he would and that coming is indeed soon i don't know when don't even ask me but he will indeed come he will indeed fulfill every one of his words the issue is are the things we are living for worth christ dying for that's just the introduction Today we're going to look at the beauty of Christ in our confession of sin. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through chapter 2, verse 2. And I want to share this. Confession always plays, plays an important part throughout the Scripture. In the New Testament, our Lord Jesus showed us this in two particularly important parables. In Luke 11, in Luke chapter 15, we see the prodigal son. We don't have time to go through the prodigal son, but I want to call your attention to 
to a few verses in particular so that you see this. Luke 15. Look at uh, verse 18. Here is the prodigal son as he's thinking about turning from that world of immorality where he squandered his estate. The prodigal son said to himself, I will get up and say to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. In verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired hands. And in verse 21, when he sees the father, he does just that. He confesses and he turns from his ways. In Luke chapter 18, we see the parable of the publican. And if you look at verses 13 and 14, we know the example. Two men, up went, two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. And he went up to pray, and he basically, I'll paraphrase it, he went up to pray and he said, Lord, I am so thankful I'm not like that degenerate over there. I tithe everything I give. Lord, I pray 50,000 times a day. I come to the temple 800 times a day. Oh, God, am I so thankful you didn't make me like him. Now, if you know anything about the Scriptures, you know a publican is a tax gatherer. They were the most contemptible people in Israel. They were below a prostitute. And this tax gatherer, this publican, goes up and he says this in first, verse 13. But the tax gatherer standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And notice the words of Jesus, I tell you, this man went down to the house justified rather than the other. Confession. Coming together to agree with God. Coming together. And there is beauty in the confession. In both these parables, confession was indicative of forgiveness of the repentance that they went forward with. Go back to 1 John and let's take a look at the text here, beginning with verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Here we see John in verse 9 talking about confession. If we confess our sins, and John is pointing out that confession is essential in forgiveness, essential in entering the light of Christ. That word confess, by the way, that word confess means to agree the same with. So we're agreeing with God. What are we agreeing with God? We're agreeing with God that we have sinned. We are agreeing with God that we are indeed sinners. You probably heard it somewhere that people say, well, confession is good for the soul. I know some churches uh, have it that you, you go into a booth and you know there's a little veil there and you 
you confess your sins and then the the priest there grants you absolution and says, you know, do this, do that, you'll all be all good. Well, that's not the kind of confession that the Bible is talking about. But what we do know is this, is that confession is essential for salvation. Confession goes part and parcel with forgiveness. Confession goes part and parcel with repentance. And one must come to the place where we recognize and we confess, we agree with God with what He said about sin. We confess the sinfulness of the heart. Romans 10, you probably know this, Romans 10, 9. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Matthew 10, the words of Jesus. Matthew 10, 22. Jesus uses this same word. Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before the Father who is in heaven. Everyone who agrees with me in everything and what I've said regarding sin and salvation and faith, all who confess me before men, those will be the ones I will confess before my Father. In Acts 19, verse 18, you might know the story. Paul is in Ephesus and he comes across the sons of Sceva. And he delivers. God calls and they, get, they repent and they come forth out of the demonic sorcery. And it says, many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. We see the same principle in the Old Testament. Daniel 9.20, as Daniel is praying, it says there, now while I was speaking and praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God. By the way, there's, I, I, I think I did on a Tuesday night several years ago, but it might be worth doing again. Preaching on Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 9. Did you hear what it said? Daniel, in a foreign land, what was he doing? He was speaking, praying, and confessing his sin and the sin of his people. You ever confess the sins of your people? Confess the sins of the church? It's worth noting. In Ezra chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Now while Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept bitterly. You know what's needed in the house of God? A day of prayer like that, where the people of God come and confess and repent and weep before the Lord. True biblical confession is linked to the repentance of sin, and repentance of sin is essential to salvation 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God, notice this, the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. 
Biblical repentance leads to salvation and it will result in an earnestness in the Christian life. Desire and hunger for God. Oh, desire and hunger for God. For God. Not merely for biblical knowledge, for God. We want God. We want the power and the presence of God in our life. We want the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We want the power, the proclamation of the gospel to go forth from every single believer. When repentance is present, believers will have a strong desire for God. Listen, that's just the truth. There is a tremendous indifference that is occurring in the church. A tremendous indifference where we're, we're starting to compartmentalize our life. We have our church life. We have our secular life. We have the church things. We have our secular things. There is no such thing. You are either in Christ or out of Christ. We need to move away from compartmentalizing our lives. We need to be men and women of faith, men and women of Christ, born of the Spirit, full of the Spirit, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. True believers are therefore habitual confessors. That's what John is teaching. If we confess our sins, who's John preaching to? John is preaching to the church. He's preaching to the church. He's preaching to believers. I've heard a lot of times where people use this verse to point unbelievers to Christ. But contextually, this is for believers. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. You know what happens so many times? So many times we will sin. We will have the conviction of sin and we'll feel ashamed to bring it before the Lord. Oh, Lord, I did it again. I can't believe I did it again. I can't believe I said that again. I can't believe that I watched that movie again. I can't believe I did this again. And what happens? We get this kind of condemnation that does not come from conviction. By the way, there is a distinct difference between conviction and guilt. Conviction is that that will bring us back to Christ. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. Conviction is to make us sorrowful over our sins so that we what? So that we confess our sins. Guilt condemns. Guilt is heavy. Guilt is unrelenting. Guilt's entire motivation is so that you would be bound. And you would not know that there is a way out. As believers, we are continual confessors. And if we are continual confessors, then repentance is not a singular deed. Repentance is a lifestyle. We're always coming before the Lord repenting. Not for forgiveness of sins unto salvation, but to let our sins be made known before God. Look what John says here. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John in verse 9 speaks to this principle. In verse 7, John spoke of if we walk in the light as He is in the light. And I shared with you last week that walking means the consistency of your life. How does one conduct your life? John said, well, if we walk in the light, in verse 7, as Christ is in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship one another in the church, And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. And I said, therein lies the beauty of Christ and forgiveness. But here in verse 9, John is agreeing. He said, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I shared with you early, John is writing to these believers in the church He's reiterating, listen, he is reiterating God's faithfulness that was declared in the old covenant in Jeremiah 31.34. Jeremiah 31.34 says this, And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now that should be a double hallelujah praise the Lord when we hear the Lord speak in such magnanimous, gracious terms. That new covenant is for all who've come to faith in Christ. So imagine if you come to faith in Christ that we would know the Lord and the Lord would say, I would forgive their iniquity and their sin I'll remember no more. John emphasizes that truth stated in verse 7 that God will, because of His character, because of His character, secure their eternal glory by continually cleansing believers from all sin, future sin. True biblical confession of sin is much like repentance, It is an outward manifestation of an inward work. The Spirit of God convicts internally, outwardly. It is portrayed in confession. Listen, many people will confess to be Christians. Many people will confess to be Christians. They will profess Jesus is Lord. And they are not born again. And they are not saved by the Word of God. Matthew chapter 7 makes that abundantly clear when Jesus Himself at the end of His Sermon on the Mount said, Many, many in that day shall say to Me, Lord, Lord, did we not? And they go through a list of things that they do before the Lord Jesus. But it is the believer, because of the inward act of the Holy Spirit unto repentance, who will confess, who will agree with God with what He has said, because the Holy Spirit has revealed to them the ugliness of their sin. 
It's offense before a holy and righteous God. And through conviction of the Holy Spirit, cause them to repent. Biblical confession agrees with God. And it agrees on this principle that we are all sinners in need of grace and in forgiveness. Right here in verse 9, we see the beauty, of, the beauty of Christ in the confession of sin. That confession produces that continual forgiveness and that cleansing of righteousness from God. And I want to share something about this because this is magnificent. I don't know if we see this all the time. The cleansing that takes place is God removing all the filth, rendering the believer spiritually and ceremonially clean. And what an amazing, glorious truth this is, that in Christ, through confession and repentance, we the sinful people, we the sinful ones, can become clean before God Almighty. Why? Because we have been washed by regeneration in the blood of Jesus Christ. One of, I, one of the most important passages, I think, in the Scripture concerning salvation is Titus 3. And I want you to turn there. Titus 3, 4, and 7, because I want you to see this. I was just going over this with Brother Larry this morning. He asked me a question on something. Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, now notice this, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope. Of eternal life. Now I want you to note something here. Note that there is a glorious washing and cleansing that occurs in the believer. It is called regeneration. If you are in Christ, you are born again. If you are in Christ, your sin no longer bears hold over you. If you are in Christ, your eternal future is secure. If you are in Christ because you have been born again, you seek the things above. You desire Christ. You desire the Word. There is a conviction. There is a presence that's not going to allow you to stay bound in your sin. The work of regeneration is done by the Holy Spirit in salvation. And the Holy Spirit, notice what he says here in Titus, is poured out upon us richly. It means it's poured out upon us lavishly through Jesus Christ our Lord. And look at all that God has done for His children. Look at all that He has provided and equipped us. Notice that our staying in Christ is because of the work of God. The completed work of Christ on the cross, the proactive work of the Holy Spirit daily in our lives. Listen, God is never ceasing. God is never stopping. The Godhead is at work in every single believer perpetually, all throughout time, working us, cleansing us, conforming us into the image of His Son. And if that does not get you roused up, I don't know what will. Oh, the beauty of Christ 
The beauty of Christ in our forgiveness. Isn't this better news than what the world has to offer you? Isn't it better news than, oh, they stole the election? Isn't it better news this guy's going to run for president? Isn't it better news that, oh, the coronavirus and the variants and all this other stuff, all the garbage that is being pumped in us to keep us afraid and fearful, but we as the people of God have a glorious existence, a glorious presence, and a glorious eternal future. Why, church, we need to wake up. We need to come to the place where we understand our inheritance in Christ and propel forward for the things of God. Oh, the beauty of Christ in confession. Oh, the beauty of Christ in forgiveness of sin. Oh, the beauty of Christ in such a glorious salvation. Go back to 1 John chapter 1. So we saw in verse 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now look at verse 10. And if we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. Listen, He's agreeing exactly to what He said in verse 6. In verse 6, John said, If we say we have fellowship with Him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and the truth and the practice is not with us. The key word there being walk, how does one conduct their life? If one professes Jesus Christ but conducts their life perpetually in sin, what does the Apostle John say? You lie and the truth is not in you. That's why he goes on to say if we walk in the light, if we conduct ourselves in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Are we talking about sinless perfection? No. Are we talking about a believer never sins? No. If that were true, we would have to omit verse 9. If believers never sin, we would have to take verse 9 out of Scripture, right? What do we have to confess for? We never sin. The Bible tells us that the righteous stumble, but they what? They get back up again, don't they? We stumble. We fall. I always tell everybody, if you ever know the secret of sinlessness, will you please share it with me? Because I must be a real wretch. And every believer, every sanctified believer, you read the old hymns, all the sanctified believers, most of the hymns was about the forgiveness and the, and the, and the salvation away from sin, the sanctification of God. John, into these, writing to the church, reminds them again, listen, if, if, if you say one thing and you do another thing, well, then you're deceiving yourself, but it doesn't end there. He's going to go on to tell them there's an antidote for sin. But it begins first with the recognition of sin. Scripture is very clear that believers are no longer slaves to sin and don't have time to go into it, but if you've been on our Tuesday night Bible studies, well, boy, I invite you to go to Romans chapter 6. Believers must come to recognize, agree with God regarding that all people are sinners. And if we were to deny that, well, then we would deny God. And if we were to deny God, we would become blasphemers of God. But praise God. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. 
And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Oh man, the beauty of Christ in confession just gets better. Notice the term that he uses there, my little children. This is a term John will use six times throughout this epistle. It reflects the tenderness. John is elderly as he's writing this. The tenderness that John addresses these believers. He's not lecturing them on on the issue of sin, but rather he's appealing to them as a father would appeal to his children. Bear in mind, this epistle is written about 90 A.D. 90 A.D., right? Jesus was crucified 30 A.D. This is 60 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. And guess what? John is the only living apostle at this time. All of the other 11 and Matthias were martyred. So think about the amount of people. In AD 60, Nero unleashed the first of 10 persecutions against the church. John has seen by this time thousands and thousands of people die following Jesus Christ. So he writes to them as a father. One can very easily see the earnestness and the desire he has for the advancement of the gospel. Now he tells them first of all, he says, here's the motivation for writing this. He says, my little children, I'm writing you these things that you may not sin. It's very much like you come to church. You hear the Word of God. The Word of God is designed to edify you, to build you up in the most holy faith so that you would go out, not only do the work of God, but you would live the life of God. And John says that here, that you may not sin. What does that reflect? That reflects that we're all still children of Adam. We're all still subject to the depravity and to the fall. Even though we have been redeemed spiritually, but yet physically, we're still prone. As the great hymn says, come thou fount of every blessing. I love that stanza that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We're prone. Sometimes we're like, we're like animals. We, we work on instinct. We do things. We react in certain ways that are instinctual. And that instinct is sinful. It's born out of the fall. The love that John had for the church was such that he's saying, look, I'm writing you these things that you may not sin. As I shared with you last week, there were a lot of influences that were coming against the church at the time. Primarily Gnosticism. Gnosticism was emerging and was starting to go in full bloom now. That taught that all matter was evil, therefore Christ could not have been a person. God could never inhabit a person. So it must have been some apparition. It must have been anything, but it denied the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's very much of that going on today. Many who say Jesus was a good prophet. Many who say Jesus was a good man. Many who say he had well intentions. But the Son of God, he was not. And he was not crucified. And he did not raise from the dead. Our whole gospel relies on the fact that Jesus Christ indeed was crucified. Indeed died. And indeed rose again from the grave. 
And this heresy was infiltrating the church at the first century. So John is moved by love to give them clear instruction. But notice what he says. I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And here comes the antidote. And if anyone sins, praise God, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ. Now, interesting word in the Greek for that word advocate. It's parakaletos. It means one who comes alongside. One who helps. But it's real definition is that of an attorney. Someone, a legal representative, who advocates and represents. Who makes right judgment call because he's close enough to the situation. So to put it in modern day vernacular, our advocate is our defense attorney. And our defense attorney is Jesus Christ. And I got good news for you. Unlike Morgan and Morgan for the people.com, and on their, on their like, who's the other one that's out there? <laughs> Not yet, but who's the other guy out there? Morgan and Morgan. Bogan Munz and Munz. Unlike them, he's never lost a case. He always wins. And what our attorney does, and it's important you realize this, what our advocate Jesus Christ does is He does not appeal upon our righteousness. He does not appeal upon our good works. Rather, He admits our guilt. But our appeal is based on His good works. On His perfect righteousness. On His being the fulfillment and the atonement for sins. Rather, Christ intercedes on the believers by His substitutionary atonement. What substitutionary atonement? It's a theological term, so let me make it real simple. Christ became the substitute. He bore our wrath. And because He bore our punishment and our wrath, we get His righteousness. He Himself atoned for sins that we were responsible for. And Christ on the cross paid in full the penalty of sin for all who come to repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. And not only that, as Hebrews 7.25 says, hence also He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him Notice what he does since he ever lives to make intercession for them. He ever lives to make intercession. You know, Paul did a great, great, great kind of final argument summation at the end of Romans chapter 8. And he uses this courtroom language. You know, Romans 1 through chapter 8 is really... There's an indictment, and then Paul comes forward. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. I just want you to see this clearly. And see the beauty of Christ in forgiveness and in our confession. Romans 8, beginning with verse 33. 
Paul, after listing everything, after going through the depravity of mankind, over going through justification by faith, sanctification, glorification, Paul comes out in Romans 8.33, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes. Here comes the crescendo. Here comes the final comments. The beauty, the drama continues to play out. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Look at verse 37. He says this, But in all these things we are overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. In verse 38, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers. Notice what he says. He goes on to list a few more shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Man, is that not a closing argument? I am persuaded. That word convinced means that you are persuaded internally. Are you persuaded of who you have believed? Are you persuaded that there's nothing, nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus if indeed you are in Christ? Look at chapter 2, verse 2, back in 1 John. John says, continuing on this thought of Christ Jesus as our advocate, not only is He our advocate, but in verse 2 he says, He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. That word propitiation means to appease. To appease. And in this particular case, it means to appease the wrath of God. The wrath of God could be thought of as the judgment of God. Christ appeased His death. Appeased. Satisfied. God's justice. And it was... Christ's perfect atonement made on the cross, that substitutionary atonement that satisfied the wrath and the justice of God against sin on behalf of all who would come to repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. Listen, I want you to note something here. Please, please, please. Note the beauty of our triune God. I I want you to see this. The beauty of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Watch. First, we know that Christ ever lives to make intercession. So this is a proactive process that's going on in the Godhead. The efficacious, ever-cleansing blood of Christ continually cleanses from sin. Continually. So it's continually happening. The Holy Spirit, according to Romans 8.26, does what? He prays for us. He intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So Jesus, ever cleansing, the Holy Spirit interceding, praying for us. And God is constantly 
according to Romans 8.26. Searching the heart. Knows what the mind of the Spirit is. And God does something else according to Romans 8.28. What? He, God, causes all things to work together for good. For God's good, by the way. According to what? To those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. Now this is a 360 degree, multi-dimensional, timeless process that is taking place in the Godhead for all who are in Christ. That's a lot different than the way the world paints Christ, right? The way the world paints God. God's just floating up there, right? We're down here doing our thing, and then whenever we want, we dial up a 911 prayer and say, Oh, God, help me. I need this. I need that. I don't have enough money to pay the bills. Oh, Lord, help me. And the Lord says, Oh, I got a call. Let me go down there. Zoom, he swings in. Bam, he answers the prayer. And then God goes back to where he belongs, hovering above somewhere. We laugh. But many times, that's our approach. We don't think of an ever-present God. We don't ever think of a supernatural God. We let the, the issues of the world and many things of the world come and rattle us and, and rattle our security that we have in Christ. How glorious. Listen, how glorious that God... Jesus, the Holy Spirit, that they do not leave us on our own. That we are not orphaned. That when God is sitting at the right hand of the Father, He's not waiting for a day and He's just sitting up there going, okay, Lord, when, when you tell me it's time to come back, I'll, I'll jump down there and I'll just put all the pieces in order. But He ever lives to make intercession for the believers. That the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings too deep for words. That God does indeed search the heart and knows what the mind of the Spirit is and intercedes on behalf of His children. That there is this multidimensional proactivity that cannot even be explained with human words as far as how much God has loved those in Christ. That blows me away. Christ has become our satisfaction. And He completes our salvation. Christ becomes our completeness. Christ becomes our perseverance. Christ becomes our life, our joy, our friend, our shepherd, our warrior. It's what the Apostle Paul told the church at Colossians. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Notice these words of Paul. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him... You have been made complete. No more glorious words, I think, that ever been written or spoken. Oh, the beauty of Christ and the majesty of Christ. Oh, the majesty of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
this precious three in one, this glorious one in three, and their proactiveness in the life of the believer. Our advocate, our defense attorney, our helper who comes alongside, our legal representative, our propitiation who satisfied the wrath of God, our sinless, glorious, magnificent Savior, Jesus Christ. So in closing, I want to ask this question. Do you see the beauty of Christ of which the Apostle John speaks of? Dear friend, why do we preach Christ? Why are you here? you got to know why you're here. We, why do we preach the coming, coming to Christ for forgiveness of sin? Why do we preach repentance of sin? Why do we preach that you must be born again? Listen, the world has painted God as a tyrant who demands everything from people. And the world paints today's tyrants as God. Friend, the truth is that only Jesus Christ saves. Only Christ's blood satisfies the justice of God. You know that great hymn, What Can Wash Away My Sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole with it? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Why do you wait? Dear friend, why do you wait? Why do you tempt God thinking that you have what it takes to be right with God when you do not? Why do you, with all of your doubts and uncertainties, maybe you sit here week after week after week without surrendering, surrendering yourself once and for all to Christ? Listen, look at the world. There's no more time. I mean that. There's no more time. Jesus is indeed coming soon. Why won't you come to him for forgiveness and be born again? Come, come on, come. Turn from your sin. Turn to Christ. Repent today. Fall at the feet of the Christ, at the feet of cross, and cry out for Jesus to save you. Come to Christ. Behold the beauty of Christ in your confession of sin. The beauty of Christ in forgiveness of sin. Come and know the Savior. Will you bow your heads in a word of prayer? Father, we bless your name. We exalt your name. We magnify your name. And we praise your name. Almighty Father, the beauty of Christ. Many times, oh God, it just seems so inadequate to articulate this beauty. But Father, I know that Father, the Holy Spirit, even now, searches the hearts. The Holy Spirit now will even draw, will convict of sin.
May no one be left here, Lord. Please, Father, I beg you. Maybe they've been coming out to the church year after year. Maybe they've been baptized. Maybe they're a member. Maybe they've been consistently coming to Calvary for years. But Father, Lord God, draw all who are outside of Christ to you, Lord. Let no one leave here today uncertain of their spiritual position in Christ. May you be glorified, Father, in the forgiveness of sins. And may you be glorified in their confession of sin. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.